Mark Cousins has circled the globe to tell a new film history. Last year, I sat down with him where his own history begins in Belfast. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. When Mark Cousins was in his 30s, he set out to write a hugely ambitious book called The Story of Film. He was looking beyond the normal Western canon to explore how cinema developed artistically on all six continents. Then he turned his book into a 15-part documentary series that he narrates. With all its talk of box office, the film business would have us believe that money drives movies. Ticket sales, marketing, glamour, premieres, red carpets. But it doesn't. Money doesn't drive cinema. The money men don't know the secrets of the human heart or the brilliance of the medium of film. But if money doesn't drive movies, what does? It's images and ideas that excite us, not money or showbiz. For anyone else, creating the story of film might be a life's work. But Mark has maintained a prolific output beyond that. He also wrote a book called The Story of Looking, and he's directed several feature-length documentaries. A recent one is The Eyes of Orson Welles, about the director as a sketch artist. Mark has collaborated with Tilda Swinton on a number of film events. Their latest project is a 14-hour documentary series called Women Make Film. Swinton is the executive producer and one of the narrators. For 13 decades, and on all six filmmaking continents, thousands of women have been directing films too. Some of the best films. What movies did they make? What techniques did they use? What can we learn about cinema from them? Women Make Film premiered last year at the Toronto Film Festival, and now it's come to Turner Classic Movies. Over 14 weeks this fall, TCM is showing the documentary, along with dozens of the films it highlights. There are surprises in what follows. Let's start at the beginning. The beginning for Mark is in Belfast, where he was born in 1965. He came of age during the years of sectarian violence known, with understatement, as the Troubles. When he was old enough to leave home, he moved away and now lives in Glasgow. But Belfast remains a powerful beacon. He made a poetic documentary called I Am Belfast, with cinematography by Chris Doyle and a score by David Holmes. The actress, Helena Burine narrates as if she was the voice of the city. Imagine Belfast, me, my world, a place where people moved in all directions. We made ships and linen and music and war and peace here. I was beautiful once, but I wonder if I became ugly. And if so, what made me ugly? Last year, Mark helped to launch a new festival in Belfast called Docks Ireland. I made it a priority to go because my grandfather came from Belfast and I hadn't visited in over 20 years. Mark once described to me his need 
to periodically re-enchant himself with cinema. For me, this trip was a chance for re-enchantment. For decades in Belfast, most cinemas were closed for fear of being bombed. So the simple act of gathering in a theater isn't taken for granted. I had two assignments. One was to interview Mark at the Queen's Film Theater. My other task was to introduce a screening of Marcelo Fools' film, A Sense of Loss. It was filmed in Northern Ireland in the early 70s, but was scarcely seen by local audiences. Mark mentions it in our talk. So now I've set the scene, let's raise the curtain. I asked Mark to explain what Belfast means to him. Belfast is a harbour for me. It's a shelter from the storm, in a way, which is a weird thing to say because it was itself a storm. Uh, but it's my home place, you know, my mom's here and, the, and some of my family are in the cinema tonight. And you are formed by your place. If I ask myself, what did Belfast give me? It, it, I think it gave me a bit of a sense of humour. It gave me a kind of warmth. Some places are sort of warm and friendly in general, and I felt that here. I feel that this is a talky town. We talk a lot. We are, we pride ourselves on a certain articulacy, you know, which whether that's true or not, I don't know. So I think of, I, I think of, it gave me a language. It gave me a sense of, uh, of warmth and a kind of decency. You know, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, another embattled uh, uh, city. And when I left, when I was 18, it was well. I kind of left, and I came back over uh, several years. And but it was a it was a big decision for me to leave that town because I felt very rooted to it. I felt that it had given me so much, the way you describe Belfast uh, giving to you. But I also felt that I had, that I couldn't stay. That I needed to go somewhere else to, to do the things that I needed to do. And, and I wonder for you, you you're just, you know, the time when you left Belfast, what were the things that were, that you were seeking somewhere else? Oh yeah, that's a very good question. I felt that it, this town was quite a conservative town. It was then, you know, it was uh, in too much enthralled by religious orthodoxy, I would say, you know, and uh, there's still, that has not gone, you know, that's still here in some way. But uh, because we had the troubles, we were focusing quite a lot on our own harbor, to go back to that metaphor, you know, we were, we had a lot to deal with here in terms of just our own world. And so we weren't very outward, I love that idea of the centrifugal imagination, you know, the outwardly driven imagination. And I think we were so involved with our own stuff that we maybe weren't looking outwards enough. And I had that kind of wanderlust, I would say. You know, I wish it would say, if it, you know where it says on your passport occupation, I would love it if it, and mine it said explorer. Because I feel I've, I'm a kind of, I've always loved that idea of exploring. And so I guess I needed to explore a bit. You know, I specifically, I went to Scotland to study, but it, you also want to just see what is out there, what is beyond the harbor. And we're, I was talking to somebody earlier today about the great plays of J.M. Singh, and he wrote about um, the valley and what's beyond the valley, what's the thing you can't see. And some people don't want to see beyond the valley, and that's cool, but I certainly did. 
Um, I, you know, I should ask, because Mark made this film, I Am Belfast, uh, a few years ago. This isn't a test, but, but how many people have seen uh, I Am Belfast, just so we have, uh, okay, so largely uh, the, the room here has uh, seen it. Can you elaborate on what you were trying to do when you made that film? Yes, uh, lots of films about here. You know, we've seen lots of Hollywood films about here, and they've got people like Brad Pitt in them, and they sort of, you know, love across the divide, or the heroic terrorist, or all sorts of things, you know, and there are lots of cliches about that. Uh, and there, quite rightly, there's been a huge and great tradition of journalistic films about here, because there's a lot to say. Tom has just introduced in cinema too a great film by Marcel Offuls, which has got some journalistic elements. You know, and the film that I made about here, I didn't want it to be a current affairs piece. I didn't want it to be a newspaper thing. I was interested in, you know, the sort of feeling of this place, the texture of this place. I felt that in some way the, the Belfast that I knew was quite um, musical. People sang a lot. It was quite, you know, the strong characters were women in some ways, you know. And I wanted to make something a bit more poetic about that, you know, which was about the kind of joy and sorrow of the place. Because a lot of a lot of the other things had been said rather well, better than I could. We're, we're at a documentary festival. You, the work you've done on cinema crosses fiction and non-fiction. Um, but you co-authored uh, a book or co-edited a book with Kevin McDonald almost 25 years ago called Imagining Reality. Uh, about documentary film, essays about documentary film. And I wonder, at that time, you know, what drew you to documentary film? When, when people come to film culture, uh, especially at that time, uh, documentary wasn't necessarily as white-hot a center of, of film culture as it is today. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it w that was in 1994-95, when, of course, we were children then, you know. Uh, and, uh, I think my answer to your question is that people used to say documentary is a genre of film, like you've got the musicals and you've got the war movies and you've got the road movies and you've got the sci-fi movies and you've got the documentaries. And I thought there's something profoundly wrong with that. I thought that documentary isn't a genre of cinema, it is half of cinema. Uh, when you think of how movies started, we had the sort of realistic films, as it were, by Lumiere Brothers and all those people way back in 1895. And then you had the kind of dream films, the magical films of, of Georges Méliès, etc. If you boil that down, you could argue that cinema has had two impulses, the reality impulse and the dream impulse. And for me, documentary is somehow the reality impulse, even though you can put lots of the film we're just cutting at the moment with Timo, who, who edits all my films, uh, we've just did a little dream sequence, but nonetheless, if half of the impact of, of the, if half of the impulse of cinema is reality, then documentary is half of cinema. And the reason that Kevin and I did that book, I think, is to try and show that, but also Tom to do something else, which was, there were lots of books about documentary then, and too many of them that I read were really theoretical, written by academics. I couldn't, I really had no clue what they were talking about. <laughs> and I was a filmmaker, I wanted to learn my craft, and so I wanted to do a book with Kevin which was about the creative process. How do you actually make this stuff? How do the great people make this stuff? How did Marcel Offuls, who you've been talking about next door, make this stuff? You know, And that was 
a kind of learning process for me, but it, it, and and Kevin, but it also has I think touched a lot of filmmakers. After twenty five years, that book is still selling because it's a sort of it it again to use this word. You said this lovely thing at the start about reenchant. It was about the enchanted process of documentary. It was what if you're actually in love with documentary. You know, what if it isn't only about informing yourself as a citizen? What if it goes deeper than that? And I think that was the book we wanted to do. So what were the early documentary films that lit up your passion for the form? Well, very good question, because growing up here, you know, the first one that I, so I remember seeing was World in Action. You remember, those of you are a certain age, you remember World of Action? World in Action was ITV, as I recall, Granada TV. It was very journalistic, it was very investigative, and I remember one on TV about here and you're seeing this place and they, they showed really quite it was hard hitting that documentary series and out of that came the seven up series of michael apted etc and, uh, and i remember that but as we know back then documentary was not you know, what it is today what it is today it wasn't glamorous you know documentarians were people you know who stayed at cheap hotels and and, and 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 you know it was very very unglamorous and that's and still today well 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 we stay in cheap hotels but guess what tom we're a bit rock and roll now in the way we never were before you know we documentary became cool in my lifetime around the i'm sure you want to get onto that and we're but i'm referring to something like in the late 90s then when suddenly documentary became more zeitgeisty but back then it was there was something scruffy about it and so my honest answer is i don't remember seeing many documentaries uh before i was in about 20 or something another thing that characterizes your book imagining reality is its global perspective and yes. i'd like you to talk about that yeah that's going back to the harbor you know if you're in a sheltered place uh you something yearn something in you yearns for elsewhere the it yearns to get out of that place, you know. And I started to think, okay, if I'm being told that the best documentaries ever made were from America or Canada or France, which was roughly, you know, if you ask people back then, what are the great documentaries? We heard of these classical documentaries and they were great. But I started to think, well, are there great documentaries made in India, for example? Japan, for example, Ethiopia, West Africa, Mexico, uh, Finland, and as you well know, the answer is very much so yes. And back then, can you elaborate on that process? Like what you know, you had you had that idea in your head. Then how did you go figure out what those cinemas were? Uh, well, uh, I can say exactly how that worked this was before the internet and uh, so you couldn't google cinema of senegal right so i remember going down to uh, the the film library at the british film institute in london and find and researching finding old magazines and photocopying articles there was a film magazine called something like cinema maya which was brilliant and it was about Asian film culture in general. And I remember finding it was f like finding gold, like, like a prospector finding gold. There were articles about uh, uh, films from Thailand in the 70s that were documentaries. And 
crucially, crucially for me, articles about Japanese cinema of the 60s and 70s. And that was the big revelatory point. If I had been told by the culture broadly that American, uh, Scandinavian, and European f documentaries were the great documentaries, then to find that wasn't true, and it isn't true, then suddenly you think, what else isn't true? You know, and w w and so I, I discovered all these filmmakers that were new to me: Shuchimoto, Ogawa, etc., Harakazio, etc. All these filmmakers were doing stuff that was far better than the stuff that we were seeing. Why were we not seeing? And you get angry at that. You know, why are we not seeing that stuff? And what can we do about that? Uh, and, and yeah. Sorry, so for the audience for whom you know that is a closed door uh, in their uh, cinema going experiences. Can you give an example, perhaps, of a you know of a film that really lights you up from that that you think was had been shut away uh, from Western eyes? Uh, so many. Uh, <clears throat> there's a filmmaker called uh, Shuchimoto Noriaka Shuchimoto, uh, and he uh, embedded himself himself in a Japanese countercultural movement uh, for nearly ten years. Uh, he, he, the story that he wanted to tell was about a methyl mercury poisoning, poisoning incident that was done by the Chiso factory in Japan. Uh, methyl mercury le uh, leaked into the water course and loads and loads of fisher people, fishing families, uh, through eating the fish or drinking the water, etc., underwent bio-deformities. Loads of children were born uh, with bio-deformities because of that. And that could be a sort of news report, but he decided to spend a decade of his life on this story. And it's extraordinary. And he made, I think, as, as I recall, six films. Uh, 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 protest films in some way, I would argue, the greatest series of environmental films that I've ever seen, you know. And that's one example. Another example is a, a, in uh, a li rather later in India, a great filmmaker called Mani Kaul, who I was lucky enough to get to know, uh, made a film called Sideshwari Devi uh, about a singer. And those of you who are, who are movie fans will know the work of Lucino Visconti. You know, he made uh, Rocco and his brothers and uh, many, many of the great films, The Leopard. This film is as visually beautiful as that. And I just thought, why are we not, why is this not central to our love of cinema? You know, why, why are we not worshipping these films? I think you told me when you were editing Imagining Reality and wanted to bring in uh, some of these uh, more international films that you uh, got some resistance from uh, the publisher, is that right? Yeah, the publishers are good, lovely, decent people. Faber really, really good. The editor, the book editor was really, really good. Nonetheless, I think they s felt that they wanted to make a book that would speak to our Western love of documentary, you know. And so it's nothing against them, particularly I understand their, their thought process, but uh, they wanted to not to have any of these Asian films in there. I can say this after all this time, but uh, so what we've got in the d that book is something that we call an interlude. And I think it's only 40 pages, it might even be less, about these great films, you know. And, you know, I would have walked from the project if they had said, you can't have the interlude. I personally think that a third of the book should have been about 
films from India, from Malaysia, from Japan, etc., from Korea. But at least it's there, and at least it was a starting point. So with this international perspective you have, um, you set out to undertake this other project, uh, first a book, then a film, the, the story of film. Yes. Uh, that is, uh, has as one of its missions to uh, to open up our understanding of of global cinema, you know, for those of for those people who, when they think of cinema, think of you know primarily Hollywood or uh, European uh, uh, art films or whatever. What you're saying in that is there's much more uh, to it than that. Every continent has its cinema, and you're going to set out to explore that in the story of film. What the hell gave you the hubris to think that? Uh, you were going to be able to tell this international story of film? That's exactly the question to ask. I remember, I don't know when I did that book, I was still in my 30s, certainly, and I remember looking at all these august, famous film critics and film historians who were twice my age, and I sort of, my first thought was, I have to wait in line until I get to 60, or till they die, or till somebody asks me to do that sort of stuff. And then I thought, none of that is true. None of it is true. Uh, you can ask these big questions whenever you want. I remember thinking very clearly, I could be hit by a bus, you know, and, and so, and die the, tomorrow. So why not go for it now? Why not try to tell the biggest possible story of your life, you know? And for those of you who are filmmakers or, or writers or anything in this audience, I, it, it, I, you know, you can sum that up in two words, aim high aim high, you know, don't nibble at your story, you know, just really go for it. And that's what I said, why not? You know, what's the worst thing that happens? I make a terrible book and I'm really embarrassed and I have to hide for a few years. That's the worst that can happen. Nobody dies, right? So uh, so I thought, go for it and try to tell a story which uh, is less Western, which is less, waste, less racist, which is more feminist, uh, which is more honest about which parts of the world contributed to the history of cinema. And I went for it. And I, I remember uh, uh, I wrote an article like saying that there should be such a thing in a British newspaper, the independent newspaper. Then my partner and I, we went to, we went on holiday for a long time and came back and there were letters from publishers saying, why don't you try and write that book? And so there was an appetite. And guess what, you know, uh, that the story of film that you refer to went really far. It, you know, it, you know, I, I've been walking in Beijing and people stop me and say, you know, I've taught the story of film. So that, that I think again, this is a real encouragement for those of us who are any age, young or old. You know, if sometimes you think that won't fly, the market doesn't want that, and really you just have to think. At some point, you have to say, who cares what the market wants? If the idea is powerful enough and passionate enough, maybe you can blast through those perceptions. And so how did you organize this mass of material? You're trying to absorb 100 years' worth of cinema from all these different uh, continents. Um, obviously, you began the project with strengths in certain areas and weaknesses in, uh, in other areas. You know, 
how it feels like a project that you could spend a lifetime just researching before you even begin a word. And at some point, you have to say, okay, maybe I haven't seen every work of Arab cinema, but I've you know seen enough, and and I've got to begin this project. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think that you're exactly right. There was a lot of stuff I knew. I was ridiculously knowledgeable about cinema. You know, it was annoying in a way, but but there was loads of stuff I didn't know. Oh, I was, it is annoying. I know. I know. Yeah. I I I find myself annoying about this as well. You know. I do, and but 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 there was but what saves me is that it, the w I knew that there was loads of stuff I didn't know and that was the most interesting bit I'd already banked the knowledge you know and, uh, yeah, but what I didn't know was crucial you know that's the kind of you know that phrase I used earlier the centrifugal imagination that's what keeps you alive I think frankly more broadly that's what keeps you young and alert and curious about the world. What do I not know? Because I'm sure what I don't know will fuel me. It'll be like a kind of rocket fuel. So yes, uh, you're right that um, I uh, there was there was a lot of stuff I didn't know, but the bits that I uh, that I did know, but the bits that I didn't know was crucial. But then the, your second point there is also crucial. There are a lot of people who um, talk about doing things and don't do them. I'm not one of those people, you know. And for better or worse, richer or poorer, mostly poorer, I would say I can't wait to actually make the thing, whether it's a pasta sauce or it's a shelf, a shelf in my house, whatever it is, I can't wait to actually make it. If you go to bed at night and there's something in the world that wasn't in the world when you woke up, the feeling is so satisfying. And my dad was actually, he was a maker. He made stuff, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pointing to my mom here. He, he would do stuff. He wouldn't sit down. He would get up and make the garden or whatever he was doing, you know, fix a car or something. And, and I think I have that from him in a way. So I didn't want to talk about doing a history of cinema. I wanted to actually do it, you know. And that meant I was incredibly organized, which I was. And I did it, that book, you know, I wrote in like six months, which is a really short amount of time. People could spend six years or something like that. I know again that's annoying, but if you're a, 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 but if you're somebody who is impatient, and there's a really interesting relationship between impatience and imagination. I, I've never really thought that out, but I know there is somewhere there. And for me, the impatient thing, the let's get on with it thing, as some of my friends know to, you know, again, that's annoying thing. Th that it drives me. Um, when you watch films, do you have any habits that, uh, you know, help you absorb their contents knowing that you may have other scholarly purposes for them later on? Do you keep notes or do you think analytically about films? Uh, you know, sometimes in your films you're making observations about motifs that run through different films. You know, how uh, different directors approach a close-up or an action scene or a driving scene or whatever it is. and. And so I wonder when you, you know, go to the cinema and watch a film uh, tomorrow, are you analyzing it in a way that 
that will help you store it for future purposes? I think the answer to that is no, broadly. My habit is I always sit in the front row, and so I always want to look upwards at this enchanted rectangle behind us. You know, I want to, I want to be, I want no distractions. I want, to, I want to completely forget the outside world. And when I sit in that front row, I'm the opposite of. I'm not analyzing. I feel like I'm a sort of eight-year-old kid looking up. And what what that means in practice is opening yourself emotionally and and in terms of excitement. You know, children, right? You're a father, right? And 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 your son bears. You know, you, you will have seen those like. Well, I've seen the Lego Movie like the, ten yeah, times. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. But you know, it's very good. Yeah, it is good. It's good. Uh, so like when when you'll have seen the open face, the exhilarated, sponge-like face of the child, with it, they're taking everything in. I still want to be that now when I'm watching a film. Uh, when I watch a film at home, when we're making a project, Timo and I are making a project, then, yeah, I will make notes if I'm watching on, on DVD or on my computer if we're editing a sequence. But when I'm in a cinema, definitely not. It's more about opening as much as possible. Then, as you walk out the door, your adult self can click in, and your adult self can ask uh, questions like, why did I cry? Why was I angry? All these kind of things. But I don't do that during the film. Uh, but I, I must say that there is another part of your question. When I'm watching, if I see something, my mind seems to be able to connect it to other things. M many of you coming from here will know the film Odd Man Out, uh, which was partly set in the Crown Bar and uh, in Belfast. And uh, James Mason uh, sits in the Crown Bar and looks into bubbles. Uh, and I remember when I... I remember not having to take notes about this. This is in the early bit of the story of film. But I knew that when I saw scenes like that, I could remember the other instances in cinema where similar things happen, like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, like uh, uh, two or three things I know about her, uh, of Godard, uh, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. I think in the story of film, you say something about bubbles mean trouble. Bubbles mean troubles. You know, you're looking for, uh, you know, which is a separate point, that kind of right point you're looking for rhymes and rhythms when you write something so that something like that happens um, but I seem to be able to I'm, I'm not very good at words but I seem to be able to make connections but visual connections between things and remember and I don't need to take notes I think when I uh, first saw the first four hours of uh, women make film last year which we showed at the Toronto Film Festival uh, there were all kinds of filmmakers there I'd never heard of. Some that I had heard of, like uh, an Agnes Varda or Gillian um, uh, Armstrong. But, you know, many you know great uh, female directors. But then many that I hadn't heard of. And I thought, well, I guess that's just the uh, limits of my own film knowledge. And you know, surely there are people who have greater specialty uh, in this than uh, than I do. But then, uh, I w a few weeks ago, we were at the Cannes Film Festival and sat down with Peter Becker, who uh, runs the Criterion film label, uh, the, you know, the great uh, label of, um, of uh, DVDs and, uh, and Blu-rays. And, uh, and I watched you talk to Peter about some of the filmmakers that 
um, that you've uncovered in, in your research for uh, We Make Film. And Peter did not know uh, these directors. And uh, you know, so I, I feel like if, if he didn't, then you've really unlocked something that, um, that has been hidden away. Uh, can you talk about, uh, just to give us some examples, I mean, you rattled off some names there, but can you, you know, bring to life uh, some of uh, who those filmmakers are? I ask a simple question when I go, I go to lots of film archives, and so I, of the Romanian film archivist, for example, I said, who is your greatest female director? And there's a fantastic woman in London uh, from the Romanian Film Institute, and I asked her the same question. And they mentioned this name, Malvina, Malvina Ursianu. So they sent me one of her films, very rough, uh, like low, low res, and I looked at it, and it's about an architect coming home because he's got cancer. And what year? That would be 1970s, uh, and it it is beautiful. It's autumnal. It's gorgeously shot. She shoots in a really, really long lens, and she tracks at the same time. And that's unusual to track on a long lens. It's very, very hard to do because it usually looks wobbly. And she gets it perfectly. And often two people are talking, and she'll track around the conversation. As you know, if you're a filmmaker on a long lens, everything's out of focus. So you that means that the two people talking are the only thing in the world. There's nothing around them. It's just them. And it was magnificent. And so we went back to them and I said, wow. You know, and I was lucky enough, they asked me to program a season on a Romanian cinema in, in the UK, which I did, and that was very nice. And they made a Blu-ray of this uh, film. Uh, when I went to Albania, I asked exactly the same question, who are your greatest female directors? And people started talking to me about Janfisa Keiko. And in Tirana, the capital of Albania, there's a street named after her, an avenue named after her. Uh, and she made fantastic films. And outside Albania, they're not known. And one of the proudest things I am, I, 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 I'm honored to, to have played a small part in that. Some of her films have been restored and subtitled, not only by being made by loads of activists around the world, but I have a certain advocacy in this area. And I talked about her nonstop, nonstop. And in, in talks like this, I would actually spell out her name. And I'm going to do it right now. X-A-N-F-I-S-E, new words, K-E-K-O. So just like you thought it was spelled. K-E-K-O. Just Go, if you go home and just Google K-E-K-O, a world will open up. You know, and I've, I'm a certain a person of a certain profile, and I can use that profile to try and draw attention to these filmmakers. Obviously, I don't didn't make the films, I didn't restore the films, but I can be a sort of go-between for something. So uh, we make films which you're completing now and will uh, be coming out into the world uh, later this year or in 2020. Um, is a project that's uh, is executive produced by Tilda Swinton, who you've done lots of different collaborations uh, with uh, over the years. C can you talk about the the history of your friendship with with her and yes. and how you got started on these things? Yeah, I mean, of course, like many of you who are movie fans, I admired Tilda Swinton for a very long time from her work through Derek Jarman through the film that she, Michael Clayton, for which she won an Oscar, many many things, uh, and she lives in Scotland and I live in Scotland and uh, we got to know each other through the film world. I think we were at a film party uh, and, you know, 
she's really great, massively knowledgeable, and we started planning, trying to do something. I'd worked in lots of film festivals, and I love film festivals, but I found them often quite formulaic, cookie cutter, you know, classical, I would say. And, uh, and Tilda and I started to ask ourselves a question, how could you innovate with a film festival? What if a film festival was not a retail outlet for cinema? What if it was more like a children's party? What if it was more like a rave? What if it was more like a mosh pit? What if it was more like a pilgrimage? What if it was more like an art event, you know? like to So if you try to mix a film festival up with other types of thing, then you get a ver into very interesting territory. So Tilda and I have done five things together, uh, in, in some of them in Scotland. Uh, one, we did this one thing in China where we took over, <laughs> we took over a big uh, building, a big sort of government Maoist building and brought real trees into the building to try and make it into a forest. And then uh, <laughs> we, uh, when people arrived, we wanted to show films in the forest, like, you know, like a fairy tale, like an enchanted thing. And when, uh, <laughs> sorry, we're laughing with it. Uh, when uh, people arrived, we had bowls of oil that smelt of you know, the pine smell. And um, we asked people to dip their fingers in. Those of you who are Catholics in the room, who you will know that what that's a reference to, you know, to, 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 all that stuff. Uh, so anyway, we wanted to make a smell, a feel of a forest. I remember one, uh, shudder to think of this, one lovely, lovely Chinese lady saw the bowl of oil and, and just drank it because she thought it was... I still shudder about that, you know. But what you're looking for is like enchanted experience. That phrase that you very nicely said is that the re-enchant. We wanted to re-enchant the movie-going process. We did it in Scotland. We pulled a mobile cinema on wheels across Scotland. I know that sounds like a weird thing to do, but we pulled a mo mobile cinema, uh, uh, and we called it a pilgrimage. So again, in both those, the, the first, the Chinese thing was trying to ask, what if it's a film? What if a film festival is like a children's storybook? And the second is, what if a film festival is like a religious pilgrimage? What if it's just like a place for sponsors to put their labels yeah. and actresses? That sounds to fun, doesn't it? <laughs> to trot out. The, the you know, there's fashion. the there's the poetic and there's the prosaic. <laughs> you uh, recently, or I don't know how recently, had uh, a. Uh, a kind of scare about your eyesight, uh, if that's the way to put it. Um, and uh, you and I were uh, talking about it, and as you know, someone whose you know, love and career is absorbing things through their eyes, it's always been my greatest fear uh, you know, that something should happen to my eyes. And, um, and, and you had a, uh, a scare about this. Can you elaborate on that and you know, what it meant to you? Sure. Um, I did one of these DNA tests. I found that I've got uh, one of the genes for what's called macular degeneration. Somebody, some of you will know what that is. It means that you, so your eyesight declines. You get blur blurry eyesight in the middle. And you know it's not going to happen any day soon, but it happens in your typically in your mid sixties or something like that. And you know, it just made me reflect on looking. I'd already done something. I'd written a book about looking, and it made me. It added a certain kind of elegy about looking to me because, you know, looking has been my pleasure, my joy, my consolation, my empathy machine, you know, my politics, you know. Part, part of the, the shocks of being alive in the Western world is 
like I, I walked from my mum's house this morning to to the centre of town and there was a guy lying sleeping in the street and he was clearly wet, you know. And so the visual encounter with another human being who doesn't have a place to sleep at night, you know, these are big things. These are part of our citizenships and our humanity. So the thought that you could lose that thing, you know, is troubling. But of course, I'd rather know than not know. And I'm a, yeah, an optimist in lots of things. I think, well, if I've got, you know, if my eyesight's going to decline in 15 years' time, I'm boy, am I going to look in those 15 years. I'm going to make an extra effort to look. I want to thank Mark Cousins for speaking with me, and thanks to Docs Ireland for the opportunity. The festival had to postpone its second edition due to COVID-19, but I look forward to its return. You can watch Mark's series, The Story of Film, on Hulu. His latest work, Women Make Film, is now playing on Turner Classic Movies. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>